Good evening, guys. If you want to keep that open, we're in 2 Corinthians 6 tonight. And a bit later on, we're going to duck back to Isaiah 49. So just to give you a heads up that there will be some Bible flicking tonight. How about I pray? <clears throat> Pardon me. Father in heaven, we are thankful for another day, a day given by you, sustained by you, and now for the opportunity to come before you together as a gathered fellowship to hear you speak to us. Father, I pray for us tonight that we will be humble and we will listen and that your word will speak truth to our hearts and make us more like Christ. Amen. Amen. Now, most of you probably already know this. I used to be an engineer uh, in a past life. I've kind of left that life behind. Uh, But as you all know, engineers need jobs because if they don't have a job, they end up building rockets in the backyard and they're blowing stuff up and they're a general nuisance to society. And so we need to get a job. And so I found myself a couple of years back at a place called ResMed. Uh, it's a pretty up and coming international sort of business that does breathing respirators. The doctor's grinning over there. He knows what I'm talking about. Um, and I was in one of those group interviews, 100 people, you kind of do all these sorts of activities and you try to impress and there's a whole bunch of jostling and stuff like that. There were six positions Six positions, a hundred applicants. I got down to that final six. Then there were four. There were four positions. And I know for a fact, right, that one of the girls who was in that final six had just found out she was pregnant and she was moving to New Zealand to be with her partner. So that's five people. I'm one of them. Four positions. Just on statistics alone, we're talking 80%, right? I don't have to have any of the goods and I'm there. So I come in for the final interview and we're sitting in the waiting room in the green room where they try to kind of make you stress out a bit and I'm looking around at the other four applicants. You know the thing that I'm thinking? These guys aren't very impressive. I'm looking around, it's like a little bit nervous, a bit socially awkward. He's laughing at all the wrong times. What's with that guy? He's got a funny grin. And let's be honest, one or two of them were not very good looking people. I'm like, dude, you should probably be wearing a better suit than that. And I'm sitting there in my youthful arrogance. I'm looking around. I'm like, I've got this. This is in the bag. So the interview goes well. I do the interview. I get a phone call the next day. Hi, is this Matthew? Yes, it is. We're calling in regards to the graduate position that you applied for at ResMed. Like, yeah? Unfortunately, you didn't get the position. I was like, oh, okay. Now, in the feedback, because they give you feedback because they're all about professional development, right? Guess what they said to me? They said, you were overconfident. (laughs) I got cocky and it lost me a very good job in a very good area of Sydney. Now, it all worked out in God's plan and I learned from that experience. But I wonder, have you ever been in one of those situations where you thought you had it and you knew the game and you knew the rules and you just thought, yep, this is it. I've got this, nothing can take it away from me, and then it falls to bits. Well, this is the danger that the Corinthians are in tonight. Uh, If you remember, over the last couple of chapters in 2 Corinthians, Paul has been explaining and defending his apostolic ministry to the Corinthians. Uh, Paul has made massive claims, right? If you remember back to chapter 5 last week, he has come out and he said, this is what God is doing in the world and this is my special part in it. God, through Jesus, is reconciling the entire world to himself and he has chosen me, me, to be the one that appeals to the world. And I tell you, like when you think about something like that, that's pretty a hectic sort of statement to make. It's a big call. 
an exclusive call. Some would say a very arrogant call, but it's the sort of call that if it's true and then you ignore it, you're in a world of trouble, aren't you? And that's exactly what the Corinthians are doing here. Paul has come to them as God's ambassador. He has brought to them God's message and by God's grace, they have believed it. And then he left, presumably to go off and do some other missionary stuff. And after he leaves, into the vacuum come a whole bunch of other teachers. And they're probably not um, the greatest people to be having there. Let me describe them to you. You can look over all of 2 Corinthians and you sort of pick up the pieces and you can gather a picture together. These were impressive people. They were highly skilled. They were rich. They had prosperous lives. They had a They had this physical presence that was inspiring. So you know the people, they might not necessarily be good looking, but as soon as they walk into a room, they just draw your gaze. Maybe it's their charisma, maybe it's the strength of their personality, but everything revolves around them when they're in the room. And these are the sorts of people that came into Corinth. They were drawing your attention. Now contrast that to Paul, right? He actually repeats back to them something that they said to him back in the day in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 10. And this is what they say about Paul. In physical presence, he is weak, In his public speaking, he is despicable. (laughs) Dude. He is not the greatest guy around, apparently. Now, there's nothing inherently wrong with being charismatic or being skilled or being a good public speaker. But in the case of the Corinthians, there's a problem. Because these people were coming in claiming to be apostles. They weren't. They were false apostles. And they were drawing the Corinthians' attention off Paul and the true message of the gospel. And then they were drawing it back onto them whose message was all shiny and all flashy, but lacked any of the substance that the gospel of Jesus had. And so today, as we hit 2 Corinthians 6, we are going to see a profoundly personal exchange between Paul and his spiritual children, because he is fearful for their souls. They have been wooed by the wiles of the world rather than the beauty of the gospel. They are in danger. So he says to them in verse 1, Working together with him, we also appeal to you, don't receive God's grace in vain. Now, we need to understand what he's saying to them here, because if you go back two verses to chapter 5, verse 20, what he's not saying to them is that you aren't believers. Because in 5.20, he's addressing his appeal to unbelievers, and he says to them, be reconciled to God. That is not what Paul is asking them to do. As far as he is concerned, outward appearances, they have been reconciled to God. What he calls them to do now is to not receive that grace in vain. Now, immediately that should scare us, should it not? Because that warning from Paul implies that it is possible to initially receive the truth of the gospel, but then walk away from it. This is very much the seed on the stony ground. You remember the parable of the sower? Right, The seed gets scattered, it lands in shallow soil, it sprouts up, but it has no root because it hasn't grafted and dug deep into the gospel. And so the sun comes out, heat, persecution, hardship, and the planet withers and it dies. And Paul says to the Corinthians, this could be you. As a matter of fact, he goes further than that and he says, if the current state of affairs does not change and you do not start taking me seriously, this will be you. And then he turns up the heat a bit more and he quotes Isaiah in verse 2. And he says, for he says, I heard you in an acceptable time and I helped you in the day of salvation. Now, what's he saying there? Is he offering them help? Is he saying that God has helped them, but then there's the past tense if they're in danger? How does that all work? To understand it, we're going to need to go back to Isaiah 49. So maybe flick back there now. 
We're going to start in verse 3, Isaiah 49. And we're going to track the movement of the passage heading towards the verse that Paul quotes, which is verse 8 in Isaiah 49. So, Isaiah 49, we're going to start in verse 3. We're going to move fast. Don't worry about that. We're just trying to get a general trajectory of what's happening here in this chapter, okay? Let's have a look. Verse 3. He, that is God, said to me, You are my servant Israel. I will be glorified in you. But I myself said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and futility. Yet my vindication is with the Lord. My reward is with my God. So basically, he has chosen this servant and this servant His work is not going so well. He has labored in vain. But then verse 5, And now says the Lord, who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him so that Israel might be gathered to him. That's interesting. Bring back to him, gather towards him. What's happening here? This is reconciliation, is it not? This is the ministry of reconciliation that we saw in 2 Corinthians 5. God is bringing his people Israel back to him. But here's where things get even more interesting. Verse 6, he says, It is not enough for you to be my servant, raising up the tribes of Jacob and restoring the protected ones of Israel. I will also make you a light for the nations to be my salvation to the ends of the earth. So all of a sudden, not just Jacob, not just the nation of Israel, but all the nations of the world. Starting to sound familiar? This is God calling to the world to be reconciled to him, the ministry of reconciliation again. Verse 7, this is what the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel, his Holy One says, to one who is despised, to one abhorred by people, to a servant of rulers. Now, I'm I'm starting to wonder here, is, is this Paul? Is this who he's talking about? Somebody who's despised and abhorred? I don't think so, because of the next little line there. It says, kings will see and stand up, And princes will bow down because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, and he has chosen you. Who is this? This is Jesus. Here is his mission. Go to the world. Redeem the world. Be despised, be abhorred, and yet God remains faithful. And we see it in verse 8, and this is the verse that Paul quotes. This is what the Lord says, I will answer you, Jesus, in a time of favor and I will help you, Jesus, in the day of salvation. I will keep you and I will appoint you to be a covenant for the people to restore the land, the desolate inheritances. Essentially what it's saying is Jesus, at the very darkest point in history, he was helped. He was vindicated by God. You see the trajectory? This is the gospel, is it not? This is the gospel. Just at the right time, this is Romans 5, Christ died for the ungodly. And at that appointed time in history, salvation, where it wasn't available before, was suddenly available everywhere. And so Paul says to them in verse 2 of 2 Corinthians 6, Look, now is the acceptable time. Now is the day of salvation. You are in the most unique and privileged period of history. God has made Jesus, the one who knew no sin, to be sin for us so that we would be the righteousness of God. And God has sent his ambassadors out pleading with the world to be reconciled with him. So now is not the time to get distracted by false apostles or false messages or all the glitz and the glamour of these fancy ministries. Now is the time to seize the true gospel with both hands And Corinthians, I have the true gospel. Don't dismiss me because I am outwardly impressive, because if you do, you will receive God's grace in vain. And it would all be for nothing. You get a sense of Paul's pastoral heart 
don't you? He desperately wants his spiritual children to accept God's message. And the way that that's going to be done is to pay attention to God's messenger. But I want to change hats for a moment because I want to think about the Corinthians' perspective on all of this. Because when Paul makes his appeal from the Corinthians' point of view, and this is going to get a bit crass, but that's okay. We'll just have to roll with it, right? This is exactly the same as the little nerd year seven kid, maybe he's a bit overweight, going to the pretty girl in year 12 and saying, babe, you've got to go out with me. (laughs) There's something just repulsive about the idea, is there not? And as far as the Corinthians are concerned, Paul has some issues to work out before he is cool enough to roll around with the big boys. Until then, he's not allowed in. That would be social suicide. And so in their minds, the problem is with Paul. But look at what Paul says to them in verse 3. He says, We give no opportunity for stumbling to anyone so that the ministry will not be blamed. Paul says, If there is a problem, it is not with us. In fact, verse 4, we have commended ourselves as God's ministers in everything so that no one can use our conduct as an excuse to reject our message. Every possible stumbling block has been removed and to prove it to you, look at all the things that I have done as I've dispensed the ministry of reconciliation. And he lists them, verses 4 to 10, it goes forever. Scan your eyes over it. Have a look. What do you see? Do you see any stumbling blocks? Because I see a lot, frankly. I mean, what kind of minister gets himself arrested? That's the sort of thing that kind of pops up on the Channel 9 News, is it not? Just a name and shame and, oh, this is why Christianity should not be taken seriously. I mean, and then you look at verse 8, 9 and 10. He's slandered, he's unknown, he's depressed, he's poor. I mean, can you imagine this sort of guy rocking up at your door, knocking on it and saying, hey, I've got salvation, do you want to come join the club? I mean, get a haircut, Paul, maybe then I'll take you seriously. This is not the sort of list you would expect somebody to be giving if they're trying to convince you that they are for reals. And so here's my question. How is it that Paul can say that he has given no opportunity to stumble? What is it about this list, these things, that exonerate him in the eyes of the Corinthians? To figure this out, we're going to have to break it into sections And I see five of them. Eddie, I think you're going to whack them up on the screen for me, mate. Yeah, here we go. Don't worry about seeing the verses too much. I want you to see the the things on the left-hand, right-hand column. Um, These are the five categories I saw. Verses four to five, I see physical suffering and discipline. Verse six, I see selfless character, godly character. Verse seven, God's power and God's means. Verse eight, I see a mixed reception. And then verses eight to ten, I see somebody who is outwardly weak but inwardly strong. Now, have a look at that, because I think the breakdown makes things a bit clearer for us. When you look at this list, you start to see the gospel, don't you? I mean, look at that, physical suffering. Romans 8, we are heirs with Christ and we will suffer with him and then we will be in glory with him. Selfless character, Mark 10, 45, right? The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. God's power, we just need to go back to chapter 4 of 2 Corinthians, We have this treasure in jars of clay so that this extraordinary power may be from God and not from us. What about mixed reception? Just go back to chapter 2. This is the aroma of Christ, which is the smell and scent of death to those who are perishing, but the scent of life to those who will receive eternal life. And then finally, outwardly weak, well, it's the treasure in jars of clay again, isn't it? I mean, you see, everything Paul has done in his ministry 
has been a reflection of the gospel. He has lived the message he has preached. And so if it is rejected, it is rejected on its own terms, not because of anything he has done. And to have lived any other way is to compromise the message that he proclaimed. And that is why he finds the false apostles so threatening. Let's have a look at the opposite of the five categories. Eddie, do you want to throw up the next slide for me? Instead of suffering, you get comfort. Instead of selflessness, you get self-interest. You elevate man's power over God's. You try to please everybody rather than let the gospel do its dividing work. And then finally, you look like you've got it all together and you've got everything, but in reality, you have nothing. Look at the list in red. Do you see the gospel in that list? No. No, you don't. You see the world. The things the Corinthians are craving are not gospel things. They are worldly things. And so Paul says to them, if you think we have done something wrong, then you have misunderstood what we are doing. Corinthians, you are looking in all the wrong places. And it guts me. He says to them in verse 11, we have spoken openly to you, Corinthians. Our heart has been opened wide. You are not limited by us, but you are limited by your own affections. And then he speaks to them as children. I speak to you as my children as a proper response. You should also be open to us. He says to them, I'm not the year seven nerd and you are not the year 12 glamour girl. I am your father. You are my child and I have given you everything. And now it's time to grow up and not be embarrassed to be seen in public with me. And so he calls on the Corinthians to make a choice. Will they open their hearts to him? We have the same choice, by the way. Uh, but things are obviously a little bit different because the Paul the Apostle, he's sort of dead now. I don't know whether you knew that. Um, 2,000 years on. Uh, how do we respond to this? How do we open our hearts? Because I don't think it's as simple as just saying, oh, we'll just substitute whoever our minister is into the place of Paul. Because Paul was an apostle. He had a very special and significant place in history. Well, I think there are two ways. The first one, and it's sort of a no-brainer, but we can miss it, uh, is that we accept Paul's ministry. He may be dead, but his witness and his ministry to the gospel lives on in the pages of Scripture. There's this beautiful little verse in Hebrews chapter 2 where the guy who wrote it is talking about how they received the gospel and he says it was originally spoken by Jesus, but then it was confirmed to us by those who heard it. And those who heard it are the apostles, Paul being one of them. Uh, And so their ministry is still significant and important for us today. Uh, But just as then, so now, people want to get rid of Paul. His teaching on homosexuality, on gender roles on submission, not just in marriage but outside. He's teaching on God's judgment and the fury of God at sin. All of those things are incredibly offensive in today's society. And you will have friends, I'm sure, you've talked to who find those things offensive. And the world says, Paul, you're an intolerant bigot. You're a woman hater. You're proud. You're selfish. And the scary thing is, it's not just the world. I know Christians who think these things as they look at Paul and his teaching. And I just want to say to them, have you read Paul's letters? Have you not seen his open heart? He discharged his ministry consistently and honestly, and all of it was done in love for other people 
It wasn't so that he could be all mightier than thou. It wasn't an attention grab. He wasn't feeling threatened by the false apostles because they were stealing his glory. His concern was that everywhere he went, the message would be proclaimed with such clarity that everyone who heard it would have every possible opportunity to receive God's reconciliation in the day of salvation. Paul's gospel is the gospel, even the prickly bits. It is our only hope for salvation, and he understood that. So just like the Corinthians, we are in danger of leaving it behind for something that is more socially easy or comfortable or palatable. Uh, I mean, frankly, I think some of us are embarrassed by some of the things that he says. But if you compromise the messenger, then you will compromise the message. And it's at that point that you start to move into receiving the grace of God in vain territory. And that is a scary place to be. So that's the first thing. We accept Paul's ministry. We acknowledge that the true gospel comes down to us through him and the other apostles in the letters that we have in Scripture. Second, and a bit more immediate to our own context here at Snack, we need to base our understanding and our assessment of gospel ministry on Paul's ministry. I'll say that again. We need to base our understanding and our assessment of gospel ministry on Paul's ministry. And this is so important because I don't think we realize just how often we use worldly categories uh, to assess Christian ministry. And, and to know if this is true or not, have a think about what it is that you praise ministers for and what it is that you judge ministers for. Yeah? Here are three praises that I hear regularly, not necessarily at this church, but just around the traps in Christian uh, society, culture here in Sydney. Number one, he is such a good speaker. Number two, he's really funny, isn't he? Number three, he has grown that church from five little old ladies to 500 hip-happening hipsters in the last five years. I might have ad-libbed there. Preaching, personality, success. Do you see any of them on Paul's list? No. And yet those are the categories that we think in. And remember, 2 Corinthians 10.10, in physical presence, he is weak. In public speaking, he is despicable. How often do we judge ministers and ministries based on those sorts of categories? I know that I do. Because we are sinful, we will always be drawn to that which is outwardly impressive. We're kind of like Christian magpies. We're captivated by the shiny things and we try to collect them and put them in our nests. But those are not gospel ministry. Do not get distracted by things that shine but lack the substance of the message of Jesus. So my question for you tonight then is, in our ministry here at Snack, what is it that you value? What is it that you think makes this church a good church to be at? Is it Phil's preaching? Is it the amazing guitarist we have in Troy that he dresses so nicely all the time? <laughs> we have got some incredibly gifted ministers here at this church and we thank God for those gifts but that is not at the heart of gospel ministry. I think I have learnt more about pastoral ministry here at Snack from Troy than I have from any other person. And it's because of the things that I've seen him done that nobody sees him doing. He has constantly, constantly followed people up. And it's not just him, by the way. I'm just singling him out because he's your minister, okay? The ministers here at this church will bend over backwards to see people understand the gospel. And they're continually doing things like Christianity Explained. They're continually working away at one-to-ones. And it's the things that we don't see that actually constitute some of the qualities that we see in this list from Paul. Endurance, patience, sincere love, 
looking to the power of God rather than their own impressive talents. I think there's a lesson in that. We have good ministers who have taught us well. Do we thank and praise God for them for those reasons? Or are we still looking through worldly lenses? It's my challenge for you tonight. Now, what I'm not saying is we shouldn't do things well. Or that certain gifts are an indication of bad ministry. We want good preaching. We want those good things. But if that is the primary means of assessing the success or the fidelity, the truthfulness of a ministry and how impressive it is, then we have a problem. Because at the heart of all of this is the reality that the gospel is a treasure in jars of clay. That is how God designed it. That is how Paul passed it on to us. That is how it manifests in the world So the challenge for us tonight is to open our hearts to not receive the grace of God in vain, but rather treasure the treasure that we find in a jar of clay. I'm going to pray. Father in heaven, we want to take this moment to repent. Please forgive us for not just looking at the world with worldly, fleshly eyes, but for judging it like the world would judge it. I pray that you'll give us eyes to see the spiritual realities. I pray that you'll give us eyes to value true gospel ministry, a ministry that in all its forms manifests in weakness so that your strength and power can be seen. I pray for us that you'll guard our hearts, that we will value Paul, we will value the letters that he has written to us, And that in this society, as it becomes increasingly anti-Christian, we will hold fast to the true message, even though it looks pitiful and weak and embarrassing. Help us to hold firmly to the truth. Help us to be joyful in it. Amen.